0: Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store.
1: This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Real Time Resilience, coping during COVID-19. We join Dr Denise Quinlan and Dr Lucy Hone co-directors of the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience, plus invited experts as they share tips to look after your mental health and well-being during this time. Hello and welcome to Real Time Resilience. I'm Dr Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about resilience for those on the front line of dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. That means health workers, but now also educators and those workers who have kept our food supplies going across the country. With me today is Ruth Robertson. Ruth is a organizational psychology and leadership development specialist who has worked across most industries with significant experience and help. Ruth has developed a model of resilience that's been attracting interest and support from across the health sector and we're keen to learn more about it. Kia ora, Ruth, we're delighted to have you with us. Oh, kia ora Denise,
0: it's great to be here,
1: thanks for having me. Pleasure. So Ruth, tell us, I know that your, um, your model has a great acronym, tell us about that. Yes, so the
0: acronym is called STRONG and I think it sort of lends itself really well to that because there are sort of six resilient behaviours if you like that have come from the from the literature which have been identified as being effective resilient behaviours for people to adopt during times of challenge mm-hmm. and I think also just the language of strong and feeling strengthened during times of adversity sort of resonates so it tended to work to pull it together in that capacity
1: and I love that I think when we are on the front line and we're busy to know that I've got I can say the acronym strong and yeah. um, I know what they mean so take us through them so S is for? So the S in strong is about strengthening your
0: relationships. So essentially what we know, what you know and I know, is that strong and supportive relationships are a key indicator and predictor of well-being. So investing in and reaching out towards and cultivating really strong and healthy relationships is the core
1: resilient behaviour. We're seeing that all over the place now. We've been reminded that even though we are physically distancing, we need to stay socially connected.
0: Oh, absolutely. And often the default mechanism, I think, when the pressure gets dialed up is for people to potentially retreat, you know, and to hunker down and to actually distance oneself from from social connection. Mm-hmm. And often the, the impact of that is that people can feel more isolated and more overwhelmed and more disconnected. But actually what we know is that resilient individuals actually Consciously and deliberately build a supportive network. You know, of friends, of colleagues, of people who understand them and will empathise with them, and indeed sort of support them during these times of challenge and adversity.
1: And and I guess what you know, when we think about resilience, we can think about it as a psychological model or a socio-ecological model. You know, there's a lot of layers through which we can look at resilience. But even if we're thinking about strengthening relationships and we're thinking about tools for somebody working on the front line, we can also think about it, you know, if you're a leader in an organisation, you can think about what are we doing as an organisation to enable connection and to enable people to have strong relationships.
0: Absolutely, 100%. And I think the role of leaders at the moment is absolutely critical in creating contexts and environments and team climates Mm -hmm. that ensure people do feel connected and supported. Something I've just been working on recently is building a team well-being sort of check-in process. And that essentially takes leaders through, I guess, a flow of conversation and questioning that they can ask their teams to ensure that they're doing okay. And if you look at it through the, the lens of positive psychology, often it's about focusing on all the things that are working well. So what I invite leaders to do is to start inviting teams to think about well what are the successes that you're noticing at the moment what are some of the milestones that you've achieved in spite of the adversity you know what are some of the barriers that you've overcome i also encourage them to think about moments of pride you know what are you proud of what are the moments of meaning the micro moments of meaning that have started to surface for you during this pandemic and this this period of of real challenge and unprecedented change and i also invite them to invite the team to think about how can you Uh, Remember what you're grateful for at the moment. What are the things that remind you of the stuff that matters
1: at the moment?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think leaders, you're absolutely right, have a powerful role to play in um, sort of solidifying that
1: stuff. And facilitating it. And and we know that organisations where there is higher trust and where communication flows easily do cope better in times of crisis and do perform better under stress. So there is a payoff for organisations that do this as well. Oh, absolutely. It's not just out of the goodness of their hearts. Yeah. So, yeah. so moving on to, to the T the of strong. Yeah.
0: So the T in strong is about taking control. So essentially this is about, you know, the extent to which we are concentrating our attention and our resources on the things that matter most and the things that we can actually influence and change. Mm-hmm. And we know that when we do that, it increases our sense of control and, I guess, agency over the situation. I think we know that there's a tendency when we're going through experiences like this to focus on the things that are disruptive, the things that potentially might be going wrong or not, not panning out in the way that we hoped. And I think what's important to recognise is that how we experience these challenges are shaped largely by our perceptions and our interpretations of those events and and triggers. We know that people who are more successful at navigating this have what psychologists call an internal locus of control. Mm -hmm. So that's essentially the belief that their actions affect their outcomes, Um, whereas those with more of an external locus of control are more likely to see that the circumstances and events are largely steered by these external forces and they perceive that they have, you know, little or no control over
1: them. Yeah. And I think it is, we know that one of the things that really helps people cope in these times is to be able to focus on the bit that you can control that yeah. matters to you rather than identifying all the stuff you can't. So there's a lot I can control in my day right now, but yeah. I can actually control whether I go out for a walk in the morning or do a little bit of yoga or do my physio exercises or lie in bed and look at Facebook and the news and go, oh my word.
0: And we know that that's going to trigger more of those sort of emotions that contribute to a sense of overwhelm, if you like. But if you start to consciously and deliberately make choices about focusing your, your control on the things that create that that greater sense of agency, it's going to leave you in a much stronger position to to manage some of the challenges going forward.
1: I know that we're talking to people who have hugely responsible roles and help, but the figure popping into my mind is this, gorgeous young guy who's probably only 16 or 17 who's standing outside my local supermarket managing the queue and handing out hand hand sanitizer over the last few weeks and I think you know you're probably on minimum wage you're probably feeling really vulnerable and you're still managing to come forward and smile and you know and really engage people you know he's been connecting and having and I hope he has a sense of having some control because he has changed the, the flavour or the tone of the way that people have entered the shop.
0: Oh, I agree. The experience that we have as customers entering into that space, which can feel threatening. At the moment, you know, it's now become a place that is a potential place of threat with the view that we might get infected if we, if we go into the supermarket. And I've witnessed that across multiple um, contexts as well. I've seen people really step up and actually start to play to their strengths and actually start to shape the opportunity around them and make a choice to put their best foot forward, if you like, um, the best version of themselves forward, which we know is contagious. We know the literature says that positive emotions, such as the ones you're describing about the, the young guy outside the front of the supermarket, has a ripple effect and it can actually literally pass through the chain of customers that are touched by that experience.
1: And I, I love as well, you know, other little things that we've been seeing happening in healthcare. The the workers who have chosen when they're completely garbed in their full PPE with face shields, that have chosen to, to sell, take photos of themselves smiling. Yeah. Yes, I absolutely love that. I saw some images of that on social
0: media recently. And again, it's it's about how can we, still create, I guess, a human connection in spite of some of the challenges that we're experiencing and, and the layers that we have to put on ourselves that present barriers to that connection. So what I'm noticing here are people are choosing to be creative and innovative and explore very diverse ways of ensuring that relationships
1: matter. Which is lovely. It's that lovely Mm. melding of taking control to Mm. keep relationships at the forefront. It's a great amalgam of those two resilient
0: building behaviours, isn't it?
1: Lovely. So coming on to R for Of Strong, what does that stand for so the R in STRONG is about resetting
0: and recharging. It's about building in res- restorative practices into your day that ensure that you get that micro break, if you like, that boosts your mood, it sort of enhances your cognitive function and ensures that you get a sense of getting your energy back, if you like, during the time of pressure. So if I look at the context of working with with healthcare workers, we know that the pace and the demands of clinical life can be pretty frenetic. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed at the moment as I work with people on the front line, that's been a little more amplified because there's greater sort of system demand and also the anticipation of greater patient demand as well, which is starting to occupy the reality of their day.
1: And I think we yeah. also have to add in, and for some medical staff, fear, which is also oh, interesting, huge And essentially that's kind of increasing that
0: sense of cognitive load that they're carrying, which is already often at a peak state in a clinical setting. And and what we know about this is that they will often find themselves sort of operating in that sort of optimum high arousal zone more frequently than they otherwise would. And we know that staying in that sort of peak state is great for these kind of periods of time when you need to be, but staying in that sort of peak arousal state for prolonged periods can sometimes actually be counterproductive and often are fueled by a belief that in order to be a really great doctor or a great nurse or a great frontline worker, I have to keep pushing on and pushing on and pushing on and doing more and more and more. But actually we know that that's a flawed assumption and that the lack of a recovery period might actually be holding back our ability to be as resilient, as effectively as we could be.
1: So as well, as so finding micro breaks, whether it's yeah. a with a colleague, stepping outside, walking around the block, whatever it is we can do. But yeah. then also the yeah. deeper restorative work, whether that's the, the good night's sleep, the weekend yes. away, the good holiday. Yeah. You know, I think about them in... If we if we pull back and think of the daily cycle, the weekly, the monthly, the annual, that we do need we do need to restore at all the different levels. Yeah. Absolutely, and
0: it's going to be different for different people, and and I think it's about recognizing what those individual differences are for you. For some, yeah. it might be yoga. For some, it might be spending more time deepening relationships with their loved ones. So it's about recognising that there's these kind of internal micro breaks that we can adopt, which are these sort of short periods of relaxation that can take place within the workday, such as the things that you've identified. It could be stepping out for a brisk walk. It could be seizing a moment in the day where you can just pause, where you can just stop, breathe deeply. It might be about catching time with a colleague, grabbing that fresh air. But like you say, it's also about capitalizing on the downtime as well. So the period of time in between those work days, giving your brain a break from those really high mental arousal states. So an example of that would be what we've touched on earlier. You know, could it be a sensible thing to build some discipline around switching your phone off, Mm -hmm. um, And, you know, detaching from that really intense commentary that's going on at the moment in the media, that could be a really good first step. And it could be about just taking a moment to think about what are the things that bring me joy that and leave me feeling sort of energized or related or uplifted. And how can I start to dial those things up a little bit more in my life and it might be the things that we just touched on there it could be a mindfulness practice it could be doing more extended periods of exercise or just reconnecting with a favorite pastime you know or a favorite hobby something that you love doing but maybe you haven 't prioritized as much
1: and, and for some people it won't it 's not going to look it 's not going to look pretty or elegant you know i 'm thinking about. For some of us, we just need to let off steam. Um, My daughter was looking at me a little bit strangely in the kitchen as I treated her last night to full tuneless volume of me singing some really bad songs from the 70s to illustrate the poor lyrics. (laughs) And and then we danced around the kitchen and the dog just kept barking because he was just horrified. So, and I'm thinking about um, my sister-in-law in Northern Ireland has been making hospital scrubs for the NHS. Mm-hmm. and there's a whole population of people doing this and they've been mm-hmm. using really beautiful fabrics and, and they've got cartoons on them and they're colorful and one of the hospitals that's the covid center in belfast sent them a video of a couple of nurses doing a catwalk a catwalk strut Love in it. their new in their new and they're all falling around laughing and thought like, yeah. well, it's a bit of a reset too
0: yeah, it is. It is. And there's actually quite a few anecdotes similar to that floating around social media at the moment of NHS staff doing, you know, rap songs or dancing around the ward. You know, it's just those micro moments that are emotionally uplifting. Um, and, and it could be about just resetting. And you know, why did I choose to do this? You know, what's my big why here? And how can you know? How can I just reconnect to that? Because sometimes when you're in that sense of overwhelm, you can lose sight of the reason you chose to do the work you do in the first place.
1: So moving on to the next one, the next level, which in this model, which is oh. Tell us a little bit about this. So The O is about optimising your mindset. So,
0: you know, essentially this is about remembering that how we interpret events determines the choices we make in responding to these events. So adopting an optimistic mindset is actually a skill that we can learn. We're not necessarily hardwired to be optimists or pessimists. It's a muscle that we can build. So learning this enables us to choose more helpful ways to examine and interpret you know the challenges and the setbacks that we're facing and ultimately make better choices you know at responding to those
1: and i know certainly i've worked with martin Seligman and karen rivage on the pen resilience program which has taught learned optimism to to students and to to frontline people around the world and i must say as someone who's a recovering pessimist i'm really very very aware that optimism You know, it's not just you're born with it or not. It's a way of challenging your own thinking, of disputing your negative thinking, of looking for evidence and thinking about, you know, with adults, we talk about thinking that's, you know, personal, permanent and pervasive. And with kids, we talk about me always everything. Oh, that's awful. It's never going to work. I'm terrible. You know, and we challenge that. And I guess like everything else, it's around repeated effort, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. So it's about noticing when you're starting to take your mind, when your thinking starts to go down that negative spiral and catching it. So those who have an optimistic expenditure style, like you say, tend to believe that positive outcomes are possible during times of struggle. But it can be difficult because our hard wiring has made it hard for us to do that. We know that we've got this built-in negativity bias that makes it easy for us to spot weaknesses or problems. So it's not always as well equipped when it comes to identifying what's right about a situation. So we have to kind of teach our brain to be more realistically optimistic and develop that as a skill that can be learned by consciously choosing a more helpful belief in the moment and interpreting those events in the moment to be something that could potentially present as an opportunity as opposed to a... As opposed to a threat.
1: And I think it's about being a bit kind to ourselves as well, in that I know that I'm least likely to be able to draw on my optimistic thinking when I'm overwhelmed or tired or miserable, or, you know, people talk about whole situations, hungry, angry, yeah. really tired. And so yeah. in those situations, I either need to be able to reach out to a supportive friend or colleague to kind of contract out my optimistic yeah. thinking for some reassurance or a little bit of a sanity check or did you you and get some sleep
0: I think what you've touched on there is self-care you know and also self-kindness and there's that body of research that we know about called self-compassion and that kind of moves us to the next stage in the strong model which is about nurturing yourself so a big part of nurturing yourself is obviously taking care of your physical well-being it's about making great choices about the food that we put in our body about the extent to which we move our body you know and also It's about catching ourselves in those moments where we might be starting to be unkind to ourselves. So if things aren't panning out in the way that we hoped, or maybe we've made a mistake, or we we failed at something, or we didn't deliver in the way we expected, or we feel a sense of letting ourselves down, it's about noticing that when that happens. And it's also about catching ourselves in that moment and talking to ourselves as a good friend would talk to us in that moment? You know, what would our beloved say to us in that moment of struggle? And it's about turning that sort of compassion that you would have for others in that moment back on yourself and building a kind, compassionate, if you like, self-narrative and self-talk in that moment. I think that piece of, re- that body of research is so powerful and it's a constant practice of mine as yeah, the practice of self-compassion. So.
1: Yeah. And I think right now, it's never been more important, because mm-hmm. somehow, in this kind of situation, the stakes feel higher, and everyone, yeah. they have to produce their best, they have to be, they have yeah. to be at their best, and any, everyone's perfectionist tendencies come roaring out with a hiss and a slam, and, and then we're also in a very challenging environment where we are much more likely to make mistakes. We're tired, we're under pressure. And so at a time when we really need to be able to lower our expectations of ourselves, be more Mm. forgiving and kinder, increase our self-compassion rather than the other way around.
0: And we know that resilient individuals do incorporate self-compassionate practices and we also know that there's some research there to show that they're more productive they actually
1: deliver more which I, I think, think is really is interesting. interesting. That is the gorgeous piece of research isn't it That's saying listen if you're a perfectionist and you really care about high standards you need to know that self-compassion is the way to higher standards and greater creativity. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And it's a great way to sort of um, coach a recovering perfectionist around these self-compassionate practices. And you see it particularly in the professions where there there are really high expectations around performance. So particularly, like if I think about the medical profession, and I tend to do quite a bit of work with junior doctors and registrars, and often they put a huge amount of pressure on themselves to be super high performers. And they tend to focus a lot on what they don't know, as opposed to what they're learning and the journey that they've travelled along. So one of the practices that I sometimes give them is actually at the end of a shift or the end of the working day, whatever their, their rhythm or cadence is, is just to capture three things that they're proud of, three things that they learned, three things that went well, so they can start to generate that greater sense of sort of self-efficacy and remind them more about the things that are working right, which kind of fuels mm. into taking control. It fuels into
1: optimistic mindset. Yeah, it's all connected in. When we think about mindset, there's also that area of growth mindset that I think is part yes. of capturing, that if we can see ourselves as someone who is learning and growing, yes, rather than someone who has to be an expert or perfect, and in yes. lots of professions, there's this thing of, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm an expert. And if I fail, there's shame. Um, yeah. How can we learn and grow from this? Yes, absolutely. That we are not sort of a finite,
0: a finite deal. You know that there's always capacity for learning, and often I, I encourage that kind of language to be used when people are experiencing setbacks or challenges. What is the learning that's taking place here? How am I growing as a result of this adversity or challenge? As opposed to seeing it as a, a, a sort of a, a fixed failure point um, and, in their career?
1: And I guess this is very much a place where I want pull back and say yes this is a model that individuals can apply to themselves but really we also have to be thinking about a wider ecological framework that as an individual it's very hard to adopt a mindset that i can be compassionate about my mistakes and i know i will grow and learn from them if you're working in a culture that slams you for mistakes so absolutely. Yeah. And culture have a huge role in enabling this area of resilience.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I had a conversation to that point yesterday about how can we start to build these factors into a system and actually make them more systemically driven as opposed to just sort of the individual responsibility, if you like, to develop these resilient behaviours. How can we start to make it multifactorial and all sort of embedded within an organisational context?
1: Yeah, because there's a certain point at which you go, enough, there's another paper, there's another commission of inquiry, there's another Another summary of understanding of what's going wrong in this field when yeah. we do this what will it take to shift yeah particularly in organizational systems at the moment where there's an awful lot of
0: media and external scrutiny often on practices and performance so again that's about applying some of those principles of organizational
1: self-compassion <laughs> yeah. to get through some of those those more challenging periods huge huge but big big issues for us all and we can come on and talk afterwards um, when we finish G about you know the bigger picture of the fact that we've kind of thrown so many balls up in the air in the last five mm-hmm. weeks and all we'll experienced such change that's yes. kind of interesting but I pull myself back on track to say the last letter in the model is G tell us a bit about that
0: yeah so the the G and in, in strong is all about growth and development and what we know is that When we feel challenged and stretched in new and unknown situations, it can actually enable us to adapt and grow, which ultimately contributes to our growth and well-being. Mm. We also know that there's a body of research now about how adversity strengthens us and can help us view challenging times as opportunities for growth and evolution, rather than just setbacks that limit us and reduce us, if you like. We also know that the optimum areas of growth also actually lie in building on and developing our strengths as opposed to managing our weaknesses. So there's sort of two facets to that. It's about helping people build a literacy and an awareness and an understanding of of their strengths. So the underlying qualities that actually energize the most at work, and it's about how they can use those more skillfully and more intelligently. We know that using strengths actually energizes us. We know that using strengths makes us feel more authentic, more like the real us. We also know that applying our strengths strengthens us, so it boosts our resilience. So there's a whole body of work in there, which I love to cultivate and work with. And the other piece is about reminding people that there's a whole body of research on post-traumatic growth, which is essentially – the research on how people have overcome adversity—not just got through it and bounced back to their original state of functioning, but actually almost flourished in a new, in a different way, and developed heightened sense of meaning, if you like, and an increased appreciation of relationships, etc., as a result of having been through that experience.
1: I think it's really helpful to remind people that if we think about the work of people like George Bonano over in um, New York, who has worked with huge, huge Um, numbers of, of, you know, groups of people in different cohorts for decades. And he's able to consistently show that when people experience really significant trauma, the the natural response of two thirds of people is to recover with, you know, within a reasonable amount of time, that that is the norm, that most people are resilient. Some people go on to be even better than they were before. um, Mm -hmm. But I think we 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 tend to dwell on the stuff that doesn't work so well. We tend to dwell on the disasters and and I guess I always want to say always want to preface this by saying this isn't to you know post traumatic growth exists, and it's not to deny the existence of post traumatic stress um and, and no. No post-traumatic trauma and um, one of my worst fears is the idea that some of like soldiers who get put into horrendous situations and come back from tours of duty with PTSD that somehow now on top of them we say oh did you not get post-traumatic growth you failed you know and it's like no if we put you into situations that are unbearably awful and we have mm-hmm. and no one has prepared you and it's not a situation anyone could imagine being prepared for mm-hmm. then yes we can understand that there are people who aren't going to cope yeah i guess on one hand we can prepare people as well as we can mm-hmm. with skills and tools that we know help them cope mm-hmm. and then we can support them during their challenge and mm-hmm. then help them find the growth afterwards but mm-hmm.
0: I agree. And, and we, can, we often look at these things through these very extreme sort of scenarios and contexts like war and combat. Mm. But, you know, interestingly, when I run resilience workshops with individuals, at, typically in organisations, often I will get them to reflect on any type of situation which was challenging in their life that they managed to get through and overcome. And they came out the other side and they look back and go, I'm really proud of what I did or I'm really, I'm really pleased with how I emerged from that Everyone has a story. Everyone has some example of recovering from loss or setback or change or disruption in some shape or form. And everyone has a piece of advice that they could give to someone going through a similar experience. So I think there's something to say that we all have resilience in us and we all have stories of resilience that we can learn from and grow from
1: and impart to others. And I love that. I love the idea that of asking people, what have you grown from? Mm-hmm. And what advice would you share? Yes.
0: Oh, it's powerful. The, the power of that narrative. And often what, what I've done in the past is I've captured those stories and um, visually displayed them and, and sent them back to the group. And they've used them. They've used them as almost like an anchor to go back to. So when they're experiencing moments of struggle or adversity, they, they're reminded by the shared experience that a whole bunch of their peers have been through and see that there's nuggets of learning to take from all of
1: them. That is mm. a lovely thing to leave people mm. with, I think. I, would mm. like, I think we are going to have to have a separate conversation about what the future of work looks yeah. like after yeah. it has been upended. But I would like to dedicate our work today to all of those people working on the front line, mm. and doing their best for us at this really, really challenging time and often at personal sacrifice. You and I both know people who have had to separate themselves from vulnerable family members. Yep be able to continue in their role in health. Yeah, I'm, I'm enormously grateful to the sacrifice that these people are making
0: for us. Absolutely. And I would say that it's spending time connecting with those individuals at the moment. They're a tremendous source of inspiration for me as well, personally and professionally. So one of the first things I do when I work with them is thank them for the level of contribution and sacrifice that they've made um, and remind them that it is appreciated by many of us
1: yeah Yeah. so so to all of the people whether you are working in a hospital in a medical center in a supermarket whether you are picking lettuces in a field (laughs) and fresh vegetables we thank you for being we thank you thank you lovely to talk to you you too